Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. My name is Robert. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry State. I am here, as always, with my number one amigo, Will Stockdale, also a ministry associate. He is actually coming live from the great state of Texas. That is right. And hey, I'm glad that I've moved up uh, to number one amigo. You've gone from colleague, I think was one of the first thing I said, to friend. Now you're number one amigo. So you yeah, can only Colleague was cold at first. I really <laughs> tough, but I am in Texas. I came back to visit friends and family. One of my best buddies got engaged. Uh, to oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a great time and had a presbytery meeting here for the North Texas Presbytery and then been able to catch up with some friends and going to go see my family this weekend. Um, so were you invited to the engagement? Like, did you see the engagement happen or was this something that you went to after the engagement happened? That's a good question. No, it was, it was a family <clears throat> and then some of her friends were there who were doing photography and seeing the moment happen. She swears that she did not know that the engagement was going to take place, but she was wearing a white dress for the engagement. And I'm like, Hey, Katie, come on now. You can tell me we're friends. Right. I won't spill the secret unless I have a podcast and then maybe I'll say something, <laughs> but she stands by it. She says that she wanted to show Grant how good she looked in white. And so that's, that's the story, but I'm going to stick with my own, my own conspiracy yeah. here. I've, I've seen so many of those engagement things where, you know, the friends and the family are standing off to the side and they all kind of rush and they take photos and stuff. I've never been invited to one. So I've never actually seen uh, the only engagement I've ever been present at has been my own, which that's a story for another day. It's, it's a good, it's a good one though. And look, I don't, I'm not against them. I just, I'm good just at being at the party. Like I'm good just waiting back until they come. Yeah. So, you know, that's fine. I don't have yeah. to be. In I always kind of feel like you're encroaching on a very personal moment. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But, that's why I just go to wedding receptions. I don't there think. There you go. Yeah. You go to the actual wedding. Um, but so much going on. Uh, probably what most, uh, of our listeners are following and I know what you know you and I have been kind of chatting back and forth about uh, over the last couple of days has been the the convention so the DNC convention is currently underway I believe day three is today um, and then the RNC convention is next week is it next week it is very interesting dynamics a lot of stuff going on I think probably the most interesting thing is the all zoom uh, convention. It's, it's been interesting to watch them manage that and, and handle the no crowd and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, Part of the fun in the past has been looking at the giant arena or um, center that is full of people and all the different delegates that are in different areas and uh, knowing that there are so many people from a particular party in one place. Uh, yeah. it, it, it is a loss to not see that energy this year. I always love convention season because uh, an old video gets recycled on Twitter and Facebook, which is, I believe the 90, it might've been the 92 convention uh, where the democratic convention, where they played either the Macarena or something like that. And there's all these, it's just this great nineties video and everyone's dancing really bad. And it's, and I think Hillary Clinton makes a nice cameo in it do, trying to dance and, it's just, uh, it's one of those great American treasures, but uh, none of that going on because of, of COVID. Um, but 
very interesting uh, Democratic convention so far, I think has been uh, interesting to watch because it's defied so many people's expectations uh, for what they thought uh, the convention was going to be about. How much have you seen or checked out since it started? Very little. I watched the end of Dr. Jill Biden's speech last night, and then Joe Biden came on to wrap up the evening with her. I know Michelle Obama spoke, AOC spoke. And from what I understand, each day has a different theme. They're, they're coalescing the speakers around a topic for the day, which is going to culminate on Thursday. One of the most interesting programming elements of it all has been these like table discussions. I don't know if you've seen anything about these, but um, essentially they, what they do is they, they bring a bunch of people uh, to have a round table about some topic. And this is a point that uh, Michael Ware has made, who is a part of the Democratic Party. He worked in the Obama White House. Listeners are probably pretty familiar with him and his work. Uh, he's been doing a recap of every night with his newsletter about what's going on. And it's been really helpful to kind of read and, and find out from somebody else from the inside. One of the things that's going on are these roundtables. And so there was one on racial reconciliation and racial issues. Uh, and really, Joe Biden kind of sits there and moderates. And so he actually ends up looking really presidential in a sense that he's listening and empathizing and letting others speak. It's just a really interesting programming element that's really low risk for Joe Biden, especially considering you know what a lot of people were worried about with his age and, and get, you know speaking gaps to really just kind of sit there and look presidential. Um, it's such a different MO than what um, the Republican Party has normally done with, with President Trump, which is kind of let, you know, kind of the old, you know, what they used to say about Reagan, let Trump be Trump, just kind of let him go up there and, and ramble. Uh, for Joe Biden to kind of sit and like let this conversation happen while still looking very much in charge, I think it's a really interesting decision that the, the DNC made and it's, it's working out, it seems to me, to be pretty effective. Right, right. And that fits the original idea of what the president was to be as a presider and to, to be able to take a leadership role. That is a, that's a, a smart, savvy decision made yeah. by the DNC for this. I think the other big uh, thing that's going on that maybe a lot of people aren't, maybe, maybe they're not aware of it or maybe they're kind of seeing it being played out on Twitter and clips a very prominent role for faith, especially Christian faith, uh, highlighting Joe Biden's Roman Catholic uh, tradition. Uh, A lot of that happening at the DNC, something that we're just not, especially if you come from maybe the center right and you've been integrated within that uh, party and that media landscape for a while, just something that we're not used to seeing or maybe we don't expect from the DNC. It seems to be somewhat of a surprise by even DNC people, um, at least kind of my, my gathering, but not as maybe as big as a shock as maybe people who are sitting on the right and watching it are thinking. Right. This is the <clears throat> DNC of 2016, which booed God and the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. None of that happening this year. None of that happening, which, which is interesting. And um, a lot of things. And what, so what I've thought about, and this has been, as I've been back in Dallas and been having conversations with other people here and their concerns and uh, advice listening to people who are older and smarter and wiser than me is um, there is going to be a tendency, I think, over the next two weeks, this week and next, 
to if you side with the Democratic Party, you're going to think this is this is great, or at least this is what I want. I want this to be represented. If you're a Republican, you're going to look at this and say, what has our country come to and what kind of person could vote for this? And it's going to be vice versa as well. It's going to happen on both sides. There's going to be a look of this is what we need for our country to survive. This is what we need for people to flourish. And if they don't vote for this and vote for the other side, what kind of human must this be? And one thing that I was reminded of this morning over breakfast was the importance of our Christian anthropology, uh, the importance of us remembering what is the doctrine of man. And just kind of as an aside, one thing I thought about as I was driving away from breakfast, I was like, you know, this is one of the things that COVID has taken away. The benefit of being able to gather with people and friends and just kind of sharpen each other and talk. I didn't know the conversation was going to go this way, but that's just the way it shaped up. And I benefited tremendously from um, talking to this retired doctor uh, and his thoughts on what he's seeing and the importance of a Christian anthropology. And so I, I just, I, I wish we had that. And I'm looking forward to having that again when we get back to sharing and sharpening one another. But the temptation I think will be for all of us, it will be to label and identify someone primarily as who they voted for. And then from that, we're, we can deduce completely down to their core what they must be like and who they are. And we can talk about them behind their backs and we can assume that they, that they either uh, hate life or hate the American constitution and that they are going to ruin this country. And you know, we can set that aside. And I first remember who the people are that we're talking to. And I wanted to just go back to Genesis 1. Genesis one twenty six, and this is the core passage to look at for the image of God. Wh who we are as humans primarily is not, uh, as a voter, is not as Democrat, as Republican, is not as an American. But as first as Genesis one twenty six, it uh, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That with all of its glory and greatness of potential of Psalm 8, with the psalmist saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? To the wickedness and the depravity that we see in Judges and the devastation of life and wickedness where man does what is right in his own eyes. That is still the image of God. Um, <clears throat> which was fully restored in Christ. And so I uh, would love to just get your thoughts on this, Robert. And I think it also is connected to the Christian anthropology. Not only can we reduce people down to who they voted for, but generally speaking in American, our Western American context, probably all around the world, it, in China, I think in some ways too, you could say this, but that the concept of sin is way lacking in our assessment of man's anthropology, of the effects and tainting of sin on our lives. We, out of the, you know, all the evangelicals, if you wonder how, how many people believe in perfectibility, how many people believe that we can actually rid ourselves of sin in this life. And then I think even more, the number of people who just don't believe sin's a thing, mm -hmm. uh, that that isn't actually a problem, that the problem is something else. Uh, and if we don't understand and have a, good grasp on a biblical understanding of man and woman, of who we are in God's image, totally depraved by the fall, waiting to be restored by Jesus, saved by his blood. 
if we don't have that, then we are going to be tempted to believe that our society, society can be perfectly reformed. We are going to slip into utopianism. And then the, the other side of that, the kind of sinister side that we don't really think about is like utopianism, uh, the underbelly is dystopianism, which means that if my party gets elected, then utopia can occur. And then the other side is, and if my party doesn't get elected, then dystopia will occur. And both of those things are competing for each other. And we are made in a Trinitarian image of God, which means we're made individually as a man or a woman. And then we are made for relationships also with each other. And we have, we have got to keep that primarily as our identity of who man is. And then specifically for the Christian as the temple of the living God, which I'm getting way out of, way out of bounds here. But Robert, do you have anything you want to jump yeah. in? Yeah. I mean, I think your point about the, the utopian dystopian, uh, especially as it relates to our vote and politics in an American context is, is apt because, because of what we've seen happen with the office of the presidency in America. So the idea that if you hold the presidency, you can basically do anything you want in this country has, I think, increased that dystopian utopian mindset. Because the idea is if I get my guy or, or gal into the White House, then everything will go according to their platform exactly the way I want it. But that's not really how the American system is set up because we've got checks and balances. And so when inevitably the president can't accomplish everything in their, their platform, you have to find a scapegoat and you have to find a reason for why this isn't working. And I think for so long we've defaulted to, well, we have to blame the other side because they're the ones holding up uh, progress. And so you have uh, Republicans who were incredibly critical of President Obama when he was in the White House. You have the same thing happen when uh, uh, President Trump comes into the White House and then you have uh, when the Democrats took back the House in 2018, just a gridlock, you can't get anything done, just constantly blaming the other side. We're actually even getting to the point now where the only other thing that we could possibly lay blame at is actually the system itself. And that's why you have increased calls to get rid of the Electoral College, to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate, because the system is actually the thing that's preventing utopia from happening. Um, and so that you're also, and you're also seeing a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who are kind of for the first time stepping back and going, are these the only two party options that we could possibly have? I mean, you have a lot of Democrats that are saying, I'd, I'd much rather identify as a democratic socialist uh, and sort of take a step that way. You have people in the Republican party that, especially if, if the Republican party had sort of maintained uh, the status quo and, and, and nominated another Mitt Romney type, I think you would have seen a lot of Republicans and you kind of had, are starting to see it still uh, who are saying, I, I, I'm, I'm fit much more in sort of an American solidarity party um, than I do this, this uh, current party. And so I think you're going to see a lot of that happening because we're not equipped with the political theology or, or the anthropology to have a reformationalist view and not a revolutionary view of progress, I guess, if that makes sense. When it comes to how we view sin, I mean, I actually kind of, I wonder if maybe this is maybe a little bit of a disagreement. I don't know. You have to, you have to tell me. I see one side who has completely abandoned essentially any understanding or any concept of human sin. You have a bit, you have a general feeling that humans are primarily good to their core. 
and then systems or uh, surroundings are bad or can, or can cause good people to do bad things. That seems to me to be sort of the, the general sense. Um, I guess maybe unless you're in that part of that system, then I guess maybe you're bad. So like if you're a banker, you're bad because you contribute to the, the systematic oppression. I also see, especially on the evangelical right, I'm starting to see, at least ever since 2016, a more harsh view of human sin that, and I, and I mean it this way, there's a sort of, well, all humans are bad because they're tainted by sin. So therefore we can't hold our leaders to any sort of higher virtue than, than anybody else. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. So, you know, this is, this manifests itself best in sort of the, well, I don't want a good person as president. I want a leader. I want somebody to get stuff done and sort of the reneging on what we used to hold about character and, and, and virtue in the office. I kind of see that going away. And it, it, especially when you talk to evangelicals about it, it seems to be rooted in this idea that's like, well, everyone's bad and we can't really expect much uh, from our leaders. Uh, and I don't know, I don't, it, it's probably more nuanced than that. I don't want to um, attribute that sentiment to people if that's not really how they, they think about it. Uh, but at least when I sort of survey at the surface level, that's kind of the, the sense that I get, especially as it relates to what we believe about sin and, and depravity. Um, that would certainly be an inappropriate characterization of sin and the marring effect of sin on the image of God. And I also don't believe that would be wholly sincere because no one would hold their husband or wife or children to that low of a standard. That's not done. So I, I question the, first of all, I, I think it's an, it's, it's a wrong understanding of the effects of sin on the image of God. And two, I don't think it's genuine. I think it's disingenuous to, to hold that view because no one does that. Right. Nobody does that consistently. You can make the argument that it, it's not consistent considering the fact that, you know, the opposition towards President Clinton during his scandal and then kind of the somewhat similarities between the scandals that, that President Trump dealt with during the campaign. There's some, there seemed to have been a kind of a different messaging. And that's at some point you got to be like, that's politics. There's people in the business and that's what they're paid to do is, is spin these kind of things. Uh, and at the same time, as, as, evangelicals who are, who are really trying to seriously consider how they relate to politics, we need to be able to identify that and say, well, what, if, if I'm kind of being blown to either side and I want to have a much more anchored response to politics, especially the virtue of my leaders, then I need to get down to first principles. And a lot of that is like what you're saying is, well, we need to define human, human anthropology and what I believe about humans and, and the effects of sin on, on them. I, that seems to me to be the place where we have to turn. And that might take us into uncomfortable places, but I think that's kind of what we have to do. <clears throat> the wonderful Winston Churchill and his, his phrases, you know, the, where he said, basically democracy is the, the best and perfect system that we have to choose from. And the Federalist Papers, it, when we read those, you, you see that this country was made by and self-awareingly 
there was a level of self-awareness that this country was made by flawed individuals and was going to be run by flawed individuals in the future, which meant that this country was meant to sustain corruption whenever it came up, self-seeking politicians. And the reason I brought up the Churchill quote was that the Churchill quote seems to understand that. It takes in both the human element and the fact that humans have made the systems, therefore the systems are flawed, which then I think calibrates and, and allows us to have a more reasonable expectation of what can come from a government system that is run by and designed by flawed human beings. And for Christians, I think that is so important. And we, it is, again, it is not pragmatism. It is proximateness. It is this understanding of proximate justice, of proximate goodness, uh, proximate beauty, these things that are uh, adumbrations of what is to come and glimpses of the goodness of God here. So when we are able to understand that we're not going to build a utopia here, this is not going to be utopia. Life is going to be hard. It, and this kind of ties in, I think, to a little bit of what we talked about last week with it is in our modern context where everything is at our fingertips. It can be difficult to imagine life getting any better than this until we face some kind of a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And then when some kind of tragedy comes, then we're like, oh, shoot, this world is broken. Um, and this is a fairly relevant, fairly recent uh, event that has unfolded in the history of the world. But this world is not perfect and it is flawed and it is heaven is far better than this. And we need to be able to see the brokenness in here and the fact that we are not, again, like I just said, we're not going to be creating utopia. Yeah. Neither party is. I think you're totally right. I think that um, the struggle, at least for the last, maybe since really that kind of the tea party era, um, I mean, it's like, what, five years ago. So it's not really an era, but sort of the, when the Tea Party movement was going, going on away and the more libertarian side of the party was being emphasized. And there, there did seem to be a sort of, uh, let's call it an Augustinian libertarianism that was kind of going vogue in evangelical circles that did hold a very clear-eyed view of, of human sin and, and what uh, we could expect from humans in places of leadership, especially in government. And I think that's all right. I think that's, you know, what you've said is, is absolutely correct. The thing I worry about right now, as that's kind of been the default position of the Republican Party for the last six years or so, is that it's almost, you can almost take it one way where you say, well, it can't get any better. So let's, why are we really trying? You know, what's, what's the point of public policy? As long as you just secure my rights and that's it. And let me live my life to do what I want to do, go to church, do this, blah, blah, blah. Then I don't need anything from the government. The problem with going all the way there though, um, is that it ignores the fact that another element of the founders was that they did believe that man had a telos, you know, the long arc of, of the human life is moving closer to that end, right? And so, and they did believe that law was a tool that, that government could use to constrain that and point people towards the end. And so I think that if, if you have a very sort of that Augustinian libertarian approach, I think you're going to have a hard time making an art, a, a reasonable case um, against the state using law to outlaw abortion. And I'm not saying, I'm not attributing that position to you. I'm just saying that maybe 
there's a more nuanced approach to take this because I, I struggle um, when I think about how do I relate to the state and what, what can the state do? I'm not utopian, but at the same time, I don't think I'm that libertarian either. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, scripture holds these things in tension in a really beautiful way. You have Psalm 103. It's like, man is like grass and we know that our lives are short and what in the grand scheme of things, what is a man, a man's measure of days is 70 years. If it, you know, if it's good 80, uh, and yet that's nothing compared to the eternity of God. And so on one hand, you have like, hey, man, take measure of yourself. Understand the brevity of your life, the smallness. And then again, Psalm 8. And then this, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the call to love our neighbor and the call to care for the poor and needy, to worship God as brothers and sisters on Sunday morning. There is this very real tension, this very beautiful understanding that scripture shows us of what life is like where on the one hand it's yes you are small yes you are you are short and your your lifespan is not much and you are pretty weak and then on the other hand but you are made in my image and i love you and i've chosen you to be a faithful people to be salt and light in the world yeah and as christians we have both of these things and we can't forget either one of them and i think it it enriches life it slows it down. It makes it savory and sweet. He's a good God. He loves yeah. us a lot to, to reveal both of these things to us. And I've been thinking of an interesting litmus test right now for us and how much do we think we're established? Are we working to extend his kingdom? Are we attempting to establish our own? And I think one litmus test is, hey, if he were to come back tomorrow, would you be upset that you didn't get to do what you were expecting? Mm-hmm. And you know, if I'm honest with my heart, there's sometimes like, yeah, there's stuff I want to do. And it's like, well, well, maybe there's something <laughs> right. to examine there. Absolutely. All right. Thank you for listening uh, to the Will and Rob Show. As always, you can check us out on Twitter. Uh, I'm at R.D. Hassler. You can follow Will at Stockdale Will. Make sure to visit Ministry of State at www.ministryofstate.org. And we will see you guys again next week.